Thank you for joining my live stream this evening. Tonight, I have a very interesting guest, um, Mike E. Michael Jones. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, I'm the editor of Culture Wars magazine, and I've written a number of books. Uh, the latest book uh, in print is uh, The Dangers of Beauty, um, The Conflict Between Mimesis and Concupiscence in the Fine Arts. Uh, I've been editor of ma this magazine for over 40 years now. Interesting. So um, how long have you been doing your um, activism and like, how did you start it? I started, I don't know what you mean by activism, but I started the magazine in 1981, um, largely because uh, I, 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 was, I had just gotten my PhD in American literature and was hired as a professor at St. Mary's College in South Bend, Indiana. And one year after I got there, I was fired from because I was against abortion, which shouldn't get you fired at a place that calls itself Catholic. But at that point, I had, I, I think, a, a, a correct intuition that academe was heading for disaster and got out and started the magazine called, it was called Fidelity then, it's called Culture Wars now. And it's allowed me to deal with uh, all of the important issues uh, and the most important issues during that period of time were the sexual issues, because this was we were living in the aftermath of the sexual revolution. So at that point, the crucial sexual issue was feminism and abortion. But then it soon became homosexuality. And now it's transgenderism. So that's been a constant theme for, for the magazine. Interesting. And um, I know you've written like a ton of books on these various topics. Um, would you like to talk about them? So what was your first book you wrote and why did you write it and what is it about? Well, the first book uh, was uh, my the, the based on my doctoral dissertation. It was called uh, The Angel and the Machine. I'd written my doctorate on Nathaniel Hawthorne and the rational psychology. The angel is the soul, the machine is the body, and that was a kind of dualistic rational psychology that he tried to use to describe the human situation. Uh, that came back to me. So that was, um, I'd say, I, I wrote that in 1978. So we're going on about 45 years now since that is. And this just recently, I was visiting a friend in Kentucky who, who uh, came up to me and said his daughter had brain cancer and they were praying to Rose Hawthorne. Rose Hawthorne is the daughter of Nathaniel Hawthorne. And she uh, not only became a Catholic, she became a, a Dominican nun and founded a, an institute where they took care of people who were dying of incurable cancer. So it got me back to my origins, uh, basically back to the first major thing I ever published uh, and allowed me to answer questions about Hawthorne that I hadn't answered, like the end of his life questions, like what happened to him toward the end of his life? Why was he melancholy at the end of his life? And I think it had to do with uh, his relationship with Catholicism. Uh, he never converted to Catholicism the way his way his daughter did. So that that'll be in that's going to be uh, in the next issue, July August issue of Culture Wars magazine. Uh, you can read it and you can uh, subscribe to the magazine by going to culturewars.com. Interesting. And um, you have a brilliant website, by the way. I was just looking at some of your books and I'm probably going to buy some over the next few months. But in some of your books, you have a book called um, 
Libido Demandi, is it called? And Sexual Liberation and Political Control. And it explores history of sexual liberation as a tool of social and political control. How do you define um, sexual liberation and how has it been utilised to manipulate society? And is there a way to achieve a healthy balance between personal freedom and societal norms without falling into the pitfalls of sexual liberation? Yeah, sexual liberation is any expression of sexual any uh, act, sexual activity uh, outside of the moral order the moral order is defined by the nature of the sexual act it was created by god human beings were created by god with a particular plan for reproduction so first of all it's got to be between a man and a woman anything that is not between a man and a woman is uh, sinful it's outside the moral order law so homo that means homosexuality uh, it's got to be uh, permanent in a lasting relationship, which means marriage, which means if it's outside of marriage, it's sinful, and it's got to be open to procreation. So even if you're married to the person and you thwart the procreative power of sexuality, you're committing a sin. So it's a man between a man and a woman uh, in a marital relationship open to procreation. That's the moral law. Anything outside of that is what we would call sinful. And if it's sinful, it's addictive. It becomes addictive behavior. The uh, Shakespeare would talk about the passion slave. Give me that man who is not passion slave. Uh, the classic theologian would talk about the slavery of sin. And St. Augustine said that a man has as many masters as he has vices. Now he said that to make wake you up so that you break with your bad habits and become free. But by the time of the French Revolution, which revolution turns everything upside down. So the Marquis de Sade understood that, well, maybe if you want to promote control over people, if you want to promote their slavery, you should promote vice. And that's precisely what he did. And at that point, it became a program that would be developed over the next 200 years. And that's what that book, uh, book Libido Dominandi, is about the development of sexual liberation as a form of political control. Interesting. And in the terms of sexual liberation and homosexuality, it really has warped um, people's minds. And it's like, how are they ever going to realize that they've been a victim of um, degeneracy? I mean, that's... Well, the, 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 gov the government is now heavily... Let me put it this way. The United States government is now totally committed to promoting homosexuality throughout the world, which means they are pr totally pro pr they are promoting a form of political control. So once you once you uh, Ireland's like a classic example where Google comes in and they manipulate these referenda on things that no one should be uh, d debating, like homosexuality, homosexual marriage. And then as soon as the Irish go along with that and abortion, suddenly, hey, it's hate crimes now. Hate crimes are the new issue in Ireland. Well, that follows naturally from what I said. As soon as you introduce any of these forms of sexual deviance, they are going to be used to control you. And you will have more and more uh, draconian forms of thought speech as soon as you accept them. That's why you can't, you can't allow these things to happen. You have to resist them when they're happening. Uh, because otherwise you're going to end up total slaves 
uh, and totally lacking any political power, which I think is the situation in Ireland right now. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, I agree with what you um, said. So in your other book, um, your notable works, The Jewish Revolutionary um, Spirit and Its Impact, on world history investigates the role of Jewish intellectual movements in shaping historical events. What led you to examine this particular topic and how has your research been received by different communities? It was the Iraq War, 2003, because the Jews had taken over America's foreign policy. It's much worse now than it was then, but it was bad then. Now there are Basically, there are about 400 Jews in the Biden administration. The Jew Biden is a, is mentally incompetent. Uh, he can't do anything. Can't even walk off the stage without getting lost. And this created a vacuum that has been filled by Jews. The Jews are to, in total control of our government right now, uh, and they are using it to promote Jewish interests. Jews are totally incapable of representing. Uh, the people of the United States. They can't, all they can do is promote their own interests, which is why they should never be allowed into any political office. So that, the, the, that I watched uh, the war in Iraq, the run-up to the war, and I realized it's the, they call them neoconservatives, but that was just a code word for Jews. So the Jews had taken over our foreign policy. Uh, they were calling themselves conservatives, and I thought, we have to deal with this issue now. And you can't deal with it on their terms because their terms are always self-serving. And that's when I came up with basically the idea to deal with it as a theological issue, which began at the foot of the cross when the Jews crucified Christ. When you crucify Christ, you're, you're attacking the Logos incarnate. When you attack Logos, Logos is the order of the universe. When you attack that, you become a revolutionary, and that's what they've been to this day. That's what they are. They are behind every single revolutionary movement. And I say that, if I say that, I'm called an anti-Semite, but they say the same thing. There's a video out recently put out by the World Jewish Congress, uh, which begins by saying Jews are right about everything. And then what do you mean by everything? Well, they're right on gay marriage. They support gay marriage. They're right on abortion. They're right on transgenderism. Well, these are, that's exactly what I said. These are all revolutionary movements. They're supporting them. Uh, and I think that th these people have to be called out and held accountable for what they're doing. Exactly. And I remember seeing a video and I think you tweeted as well as about all these um, Jewish people like highlighting all these famous Jewish people that have led the fight for gay rights and abortion and stuff. I don't know if you've seen it, but I think you tweeted it. I think it was like from the reform Judaism thing. And as I just said, they're basically made a video about like how Jews have led to fight for gay rights and abortion. Yeah, I think you're yeah. talking about, we're talking about the same video. So when yeah. they, they say, we're saying exactly the same thing. It's just when they say it, they say this is a good thing. And when I say it, I said it's a bad thing. It's, it's part of the revolutionary attempt to overthrow your culture, to destroy American culture or Irish culture or German culture or whatever it is, but certainly American culture. Exactly. Um in your other book, Dion, am I pronouncing this right? I think it's called Dionysus Rising, or The Birth of Cultural Revolution 
out of the spirit of music, you argue that music has played a significant role in societal transformation throughout history. Um, could you provide like specific examples of how music has been used as a catalyst for cultural revolutions and what impact does it have on um, shaping individuals as collective values? I mean, music today would be kind of like most music would be promoting like um, sexual liberation, wouldn't they? Well, Plato said when the modes of music change, when the form of music changes, the state is ripe for revolution. And that's exactly what happened. So Dionysus Rising uh, begins with uh, Richard Wagner and uh, the revolutionary changes he brought about in uh, tonality, uh, specifically with uh, the opera Tristan and Isolde. That was uh, a revolutionary, sexual revolutionary manifesto for the German people. And it, it had contributed to the corruption of sexual morals throughout Germany. Thomas Mann wrote about this, famous German novelist, he wrote about that. Uh, but the sa same, so it happened there. The man who was the prophet for this guy was uh, Nietzsche, who explained in his book, The Birth of Tragedy. The subtitle of my book is a play on his book, uh, The Birth of Tragedy, uh, where he explained the revolutionary potential for Wag Wagner's music. And that did come to play, that did happen in the German-speaking world, where the moral, sexual morals were corrupted. Uh, first of all, uh, most significantly during the Weimar Republic during the 1920s, Hitler was a reaction to that sexual corruption. But then once Hitler was defeated, the Americans brought it back in uh, with their Jewish um, assistance. And the same thing happened in Germany from the 50s all the way up to the 70s, which is when I was living there teaching. Same thing happened in the 60s in the United States. Music, if you weren't there, you don't understand what a crucial role music played in the cultural revolution of the 1960s. So one of the guys, a guy named uh, Charles Reich, who was a homosexual, wrote a book that was kind of popular back then called The Greening of America. And he talked about what it was like to be in Berkeley uh, in the 19, I think it'd be like 1965 when he first heard Jefferson Airplane. So this opened up all sorts of possibilities uh, for life that he hadn't thought about before he heard that music. And it was all basically some form of sexual liberation. And eventually he acted on it and became an, a homosexual. So he had, he always had these tendencies because these people have these tendencies, you know, from early on, from childhood, uh, but he never acted on them until he heard Jefferson Airplane, which is, you know, that's not really homosexual music, but it is music that uh, indicates some type of sexual liberation just over the horizon. And they were just one band. There were all these bands in California, like The Doors, which was even more explicit than Jefferson Airplane, all proclaiming the same message. Is there's a new way of there's a new way of living. You know, uh, if you're going to San Francisco, wear some flowers in your hair. All this type of stuff happened all around the same time, and it enabled a whole generation, like my generation, to act on impulses that they would have repressed if they hadn't heard the music. Interesting. I suppose music is a huge weapon um, to drive propaganda and all this um, 
degeneracy you've just um stated and in your other book logos rising a history of reality dwells into the concept of logos drawing from various religious philosophical and historical perspective what led you to explore the topic of logos and what insights have you gained about its significance in understanding diverse cultural and religious traditions so uh it was two two things uh led to that book first of all i had to use the word logos in the jewish revolutionary spirit because that was the key term the jews are in rebellion against Logos, which is the order of the universe. So that was, so, well, what was this order of the universe? Well, I hadn't, I hadn't described it. All I described was the negative reaction, the hatred of that that was manifested by the Jews. At the same time, I was traveling all around the world at this point and going to places like Iran. I started going to Iran 10 years ago, 2013, first time I went there and suddenly was involved in talking to people that had a completely different background than my own, okay? They, are, they were Muslims, I'm Catholic. They uh, grew up after the revolution of 1979, which is an anti-American revolution. Uh, they called America the great Satan. I remember being in a uh, celebration of the Iranian revolution in Tehran, marching with three million people there, I'm surrounded by women in charters, you know, the full dress, you know, the black dress. And they're all shouting, they're all chanting something I can't understand. And so I turned to my translator and I said, what are they saying? He said, death to America. So uh, I, I, I started to wonder, how, how, how is it possible to talk to people like this? You know, I mean, I, in a sense, I, I agreed with what they were saying <laughs> because I think America is the great Satan. And I've just written an article. I did a podcast about the satanic uh, deep grammar of the American empire uh, based on people like uh, John Milton, who wrote the Protestant epic. Satan is the hero of uh, Milton's epic. I think it's a, a case you can make a case for it. I think I've made the case. But the question is, how do you talk to people from a different background? And you have to go back to Logos because Logos is what defines us as human beings. We are the only creature that can speak, that can uh, reason, that can plan for the future, all of these type of things. And that had to be the basis of our common lingua franca for the entire world now. Because now English is spoken all over the world, and that's a good thing. But the question is, what are we going to talk about? And so that's why I decided to talk about the history of Logos. Um, and that's what that book is about. It's also a, it's a history of philosophy. It's a history of metaphysics. It's also a history of how these concepts did not ke catch on in places like the Islamic world uh, and how they were repudiated in the world that they created, namely Europe, by people like Nietzsche and uh, Foucault and Derrida and all these people who hated Logos. So that's how it came about. That sounds interesting. So in your other book, In Degenerate Moderns, Modernity as Rationalized Sexual Mis and Behavior, you argue that modernism and various forms of 
um, art and literature is often intertwined with sexual deviance. Could you elaborate on this connection and its implications of our understanding of artistic expression and cultural boundaries? Yeah, I at that point I was I was reading a biography of Sartre. And uh, nobody knew who he was anymore. He was famous in the 60s as an existentialist. Uh, nobody paid any attention to him anymore. And I remember trying to read it and feeling that I was stupid because I didn't understand what he was saying. But then it turns out that he was taking dexedrine. He was taking amphetamines and would write for 12 hours at a stretch. And so maybe the problem was with him. And I started to realize that biography is very important. Uh, now, I was the way I learned literature, biography was not supposed to be important at all. I, was, I learned a new criticism, which is basically a kind of formalism where you just pretended that there was no biography or biography wasn't relevant. That's not true. It is relevant, and it's especially relevant um, in one instance. So if you subordinate your desires to the truth, then all that's important is the truth. But if you subordinate the truth to your desires, then your desires are the most important thing I need to know in order to understand your writing. And in order to know that, I have to know your biography. And so I got heavily involved in biographies and re reading biographies of all kinds of people and then trying to make sense of things that I couldn't make sense of before. So uh, Picasso's paintings, for example. Why did he come up with those paintings that way? And I think it was a function of uh, his sexual behavior. So he had a lot of girlfriends, a couple of wives, uh, and whenever he fell in love with a woman, it was always realistic, you know, realistic portrait. Whenever he tired of her, got disgusted with her, he would pay, uh, basically she'd become a cubist kind of distortion. So cubism is basically a function of his sexual desires. It's that simple. And I covered other people like Margaret Mead, uh, you know, did... did was that really true, what she said about Samoa? No, not really. Uh, she projected her own guilty conscience on Samoa, uh, said that it was a free love paradise, simply because she had committed adultery before she went there. Same thing with Sigmund Freud, which I found puzzling, but then once you figure out his relationship with his sister-in-law, uh, all things like the Oedipus complex start to make sense. So that's what, that's what that book is about. Dionysus Rising is simply a continuation of that book uh, focusing on music. And then the third book in the trilogy was Living Machines, which is basically a further extension dealing with architecture. But the premises of these is all the same. The biography is important to understand the, uh, the, the work, the art. I mean, interesting. So um, on to our next topic on mass immigration and Catholicism. So what do you think are the main factors that are behind mass immigration and how does it affect the principles of Catholicism? Uh, what, so uh, when I grew up in Philadelphia at a time of uh, racial turmoil after World War II. And what was happening, no one would say this uh, out loud, but what was really happening behind the scenes was that the big uh, WASP foundations like the Ford Foundation uh, decided that they Catholics had too much power in America and that the way to eliminate their political power was to destroy their neighborhoods. 
And the way to destroy their neighborhoods was mass migration. So you have to make a distinction between individual migration, uh, which uh, can be successful, and mass migration, which is always orchestrated for political purposes to destroy the native people. And uh, usually it's from a foreign country, uh, but in this instance, it was simply the black people who were moved up from, in Philadelphia, they were moved up from North and South Carolina. In Chicago, they were moved up from Mississippi, and they became the avant-garde of uh, the destruction uh, of the ethnic cleansing of all of the big cities with big Catholic neighborhoods in America. So that's, that's how, that was my, I wrote a book called The Slaughter of Cities, Urban Renewal as Ethnic Cleansing. I'm the first one who ever said that urban renewal was a form of ethnic cleansing. I'm the first one who applied the term ethnic cleansing, which should only be used in relation to Yugoslavia, first one to apply it to America. Now, uh, what is happening is that Europe is being subjected to the same thing, especially a country like Ireland. A small Catholic country like Ireland has been targeted, and it has now run the elites in Ireland, the professional political class, is working to destroy the uh, Irish ethnic uh, state that was created uh, after independence from the British and destroy it through, first of all, sexual liberation. I've already talked about that, but also mass migration. And so at this particular time, the, the engine of mass, the main engine of mass migration is the war in the Ukraine. Uh, the war in Ukraine serves a number of different purposes other than simply trying to destroy Russia. Uh, one of the purposes is to destroy Europe uh, and particularly Germany, even though these are supposed to be our allies. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, one of the major neocons, came up with uh, a new policy in 1992, right after the fall of the Soviet Union, and said basically the United States was going to destroy any power that challenged its sole hegemony over the world. Well, Europe, uh, when it came together as the European Union, had significant power, and now the United States is trying to destroy, they're using the Ukraine war as an excuse to destroy Europe. Uh, the classic example is blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline. That, uh, Germany is supposed to be our ally in NATO, and the United States blew up their pipeline because they don't want any connection between Germany and, and Russia. Any cooperation is bad, and the United States is now going to destroy it. Well, that's what's happening in America. There are all kinds. The, the war is the best engine for social engineering and mass migration. So a lot of this happened because of the war in Syria. I think that 2015, most of those people were refugees from the Syrian conflict, uh, and they were, Turkey was using them basically to extort money threatening Germany, for example, with mass wave, waves of immigrants unless they paid him some type of fee to keep them hostage there in the, personal, in the uh, uh, refugee camps in, in southern Turkey. Exactly. And about mass immigration, too, I think there's a thing called the Kalergi Plan, which was named after a man called Richard, Richard von Kalergi, who um, was one of the founders of the European Union, as far as I believe. And basically what the clergy plan is, is basically like non, say, like non-white immigration into Europe, 
if you want to call that way, or right. like yes. for Europe. I mean, that's yes. one of the big factors behind it. And like all the NGOs in Ireland and in Britain and in even in Sweden and all those countries are funded by the E, which is on the um and the UN as well, which are both on board of the clergy plan. And I suppose Dave used the clergy plan to dismantle our Catholic and Christian cultures. Right. Yeah, Barbara Lerner Spector said this. It's a famous video. She she ended up in Sweden, and she's going. To, she said the Jews can teach you to be multicultural. No, the Jews are using mass migration to destroy your culture. That's what's going on, uh, no matter what they say to the to the contrary. Uh, and uh, the the riots in France are the result of precisely this plan, where the elites. Uh, in the 1970s, started promote, to promote uh, migration. We we even have uh, the ambassador Rivkin, uh, a Jew who was appointed by Obama to be ambassador to France, deliberately promoted racial conflict. You know, there were these uh, Africans, so Algerians, other uh, French colonies, black colonies in Africa. Uh, that had moved into the suburbs around Paris and all these big cities. And he, this guy Rivkin, the Jew, the revolutionary Jew, was promoting uh, insurrection among this group of people. It's, it's come out, came out uh, in the time of the riots. So this is what happens when you make an alliance with America. The Americans will then come in and try to destroy you. That's France, Germany, I've already talked about. It's true of Ireland. It's true of every, uh, every country uh, in, in Europe right now. Now, the, the only one that's resisting it to any significant extent is uh, Hungary, as far as I can tell. The uh, Maloney is supposed to be a kind of conservative in Italy, but she's a pawn of the Jews, uh, just like uh, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. And like people in Holland, you know, they get they work these people up, nationalist parties in places like Holland and then the Flams block. And uh, they're supposed to get all upset about the Muslims and Muslim migration, but they're not supposed to talk about the Jews who are orchestrating the Muslim immigration. Interesting too. And about Ron DeSantis, he's actually in America made illegal to distribute leaflets about um, the Jewish um, factor in mass immigration and other um, degenerate programs as well. I'm not sure if he's seen that. He signed in like hate speech laws in Florida that's what caused the- that's what caused the hate speech laws. There's a, a group called the Goyim Defense League that handed out flyers saying the Jews control the government and they handed them out at synagogues and as a result the uh, the Jews then pressed for hate crimes, hate speech laws, and they got him in because Ron DeSantis is a, a pawn of the Jews. He he went to, he signed that bill into law in Israel. Why do you do that? This only applies to Florida. Why did you fly to Israel? Because he wants to tell them, uh, people like Sheldon Adelson's widow, who has lots of money, to support him with their money so that uh, he can do their bidding. Exactly. And do you think that Donald Trump is also um, part of the um, Jewish thing? Yes, of course he was. He was the most Jewish president in American history up to that time. I mean, you could probably say the same thing about Biden now, but Biden's incompetent. He's non compus mentis, but he's got more Jews in his administration than than Donald Trump. 
So, yeah, you, Donald Trump had to learn the hard way that if you serve the Jews, uh, they're going to turn on you. If you bend down, if you get down and lick their boots, uh, they will kick you in the teeth. That's I So Donald Trump values loyalty. I just wonder if he's learned his lesson. Learn the lesson uh, that the Jews tried to teach him there. So he released uh, Jonathan Pollard, the greatest traitor in American history. He had been in prison for 30 years for se uh, giving secrets to the Israelis. He released them because the Jews wanted him out. So he did what the Jews wanted. So then Sheldon Adelson, his main backer, shows up, flies uh, uh, Pollard to Israel in his private plane, gets out, and who, there's Benjamin Netanyahu on the tarmac greeting him when he gets there. Benjamin Netanyahu was the first leader, world leader, to throw Donald Trump under the bus when he threw his support behind, recognized Biden during that crucial period when there was a question about the legitimacy of the election. So the question is, did Donald Trump learn his lesson? Did you learn your lesson about being a servant of the Jews and the fact that they don't have gratitude? Okay, that's that's the problem. That if he did, then that's great. He should tell us though that he did, rather than you know beating around the bush so that he doesn't offend these powerful people. I mean, about Trump too. Do I do think he is a member of their cabal? Because first of all, what put well people off him was when he pushed the um, you know, the vaccine, the Operation Warp Speed. That was one of the main reasons why people lost trust in him. So I do think. No, I don't, I don't. I don't think. I think COVID caught him by surprise. He never. He he brought Anthony Fauci onto the podium next to him. He never should have done that. Anthony Fauci was his enemy, and he didn't know that. He didn't. You know, uh, Sung Sun Su Sun Xiu Su, whoever the Chinese guy's name is, said, "If you don't know your enemy, you'll lose every war." Well, he didn't know who his enemy was. And he lost that war. He got uh, diselected. And one of the main things that blindsided him was the COVID thing. He didn't understand that medicine had been weaponized. So now we know that. And we were, I mean, we were all taken by surprise by COVID. But I knew about, I know who Anthony Fauci was. I knew him from way back. He was the guy who killed all those homosexuals by um, allowing them to take AZT, which was a completely toxic thing. He was a complete opportunist to use this time to basically consolidate power over the medical establishment. Trump didn't know that. So I guess you can't know everything. I mean, that's true too, I suppose. But um, I don't know if this is correct or not, but hasn't Trump been opposing other vaccines pre-COVID? Um, Has he been opposing Vaccines? Yeah. Not, not that I know of. I don't know anything about that. No, I always thought he was on the anti-vax side and before, before COVID, but about mass immigration, how can Catholic organizations um, actively engage with the issue of mass immigration? And like, how can they push back against it, like Catholic organizations? The first distinction you have to make is between normal immigration and weaponized immigration. And then now you're going to have to deal with particular geographical circumstances. So the main issue in the uh, United States of America is the border with Mexico. Uh, can we secure our border? Uh, if you can't, if you don't have borders, you're not a country. 
you have to have a boundary and you have to say that the law applies within this boundary. Well, now you've got a Jew uh, who's head of Homeland Security, whose name is uh, Mayorkas, whose main qualification is, is inability to keep people from crossing the border. Well, that's because the Jews are, as you said, they're, they're involved. They're promoters of the Kalergi plan, also for the United States of America. So the first thing you'd have to do, and this is a government thing, you know, the government has to secure the border. They got to stop this, this mass migration, uh, which is weaponized and bringing all sorts of problems. Uh, to do that, you're going to have to drive the Democrats from power because the Democrats want this because they assume that all these people are going to become vote, uh, Democratic voters and that they will displace the population that voted for Donald Trump, uh, uh, the Republicans. That's, that's uh, you know, beyond, you know, look, only a government can do this. Only a government can enforce its borders. But the citizens can bring to the attention of the politicians the fact that this is warfare. It's not some type of uh, uh, innocent phenomenon. There is all sorts of ugly things associated with this uh, mass migration, weaponized migration, human trafficking, drug trafficking, and so on and so forth. And we have to uh, alert ourselves to that. Now, this is especially important, too, for Catholics, because there's a segment of the Catholic population that says, you know, well, we're all immigrants. Well, that's true. Uh, and But the other thing is that they say that, yeah, uh, and the immigrants should be taken care of. If you've got a guy who shows up and he doesn't have any food, the church is there to make sure that to take care of him, you know, especially if he's a fellow Catholic, assuming that these people who are coming in are Mexicans. Most of them are Catholic. That's not the case. There are lots of people from all over that just use the southern border to come in. But the main thing is we have to make ourselves aware of these issues and uh, so that we can get the leaders that we need to articulate and enforce them. Yes, exactly. Um, especially, in, especially in Ireland, most um, left-leaning politicians are getting um, called out now for supporting mass immigration and stuff. And it looks like people are beginning to resist um, the clergy plan agenda within their own towns. And I think it would be great to see if the Catholic Church could support um, these people as well, but unfortunately, um, the church seems to be supporting the um, clergy plan. I don't know if, if it's been naive or whatever, but I think the priests are naive. But um, I have another question too about um, this. Be more kind of a question that would make sense. How do you, how do you think the Catholic Church should address um, sexual liberation? I mean, the Catholic Church has seemed to have gotten weak on that subject, and I haven't yeah. seen any priests talk about that. No, the, to have the, the, away. the classic example when the the referendum for uh, gay marriage came up, Dermot Martin, who was the uh, primate of Ireland and the Cardinal Archbishop of Dublin, said he wasn't going to tell Catholics how to vote. Well, you should have told them how to vote. That's your responsibility for something, an assault on the moral law. The Church is one of the main roles that the church play is defending the moral law and that's what he should have done and uh, there's this kind of mistaken sense of uh, you you define the homosexual issue as compassion for an individual homosexual that's not what what's really going on here 
what you're seeing is the government mobilizing homosexuality as a revolutionary group. This is a revolutionary group. The Jews are he were heavily involved in creating the homosexual as their proxy warrior, every bit as much as they created the blacks as their proxy warriors during the civil rights movement. There are people who are behind this. Uh, women's rights, is that really what we're talking about? Or are we talking about feminism, the Jewish promotion of abortion as basically the recruiting device to create turn Catholic women into feminists? All of these things have to be seen for the type of warfare, psychological warfare that they are. And then once you see them that way, then the church should take steps to protect the Catholic faithful against them because this is war on the Catholic church. Exactly. And I feel like ever since Vatican II, um, this is my understanding of it. Since Vatican II, the church has like gone liberal and, and in Vatican I, the church seemed really strong. But ever since the creation of the, you know, the second Vatican Council, the church has seemed to um, collapse. I mean, what's your take on that? Well, one of, so 1965, uh, the, at that point in history, the Catholics had control of the films that came out of Hollywood. The Jews ran Hollywood, but the Catholics had veto power over the films that came out there, and the Jews didn't like it. So they broke the production code with a movie called The Pawn Broker, which was Holocaust porn. I mean, it's kind of mild compared to what you see on your cell phone now, but that was cutting-edge pornography back at that point. And the Catholic Church couldn't condemn it because the same year... Uh, they had promoted, uh, promulgated the council document called Nostra Aetate, which said the church is against all forms of anti-Semitism. Well, they said that, but they never defined what anti-Semitism was. So what do you mean? You mean anything the ADL doesn't like? You mean anytime some Jew doesn't like what you say, you have to go along with him because otherwise you will be called an anti-Semite? This has been... Uh, catastrophe for the church because the main driving force behind all of these revolutionary movements after the 1960s was the Jews. I have already told you, go to their, uh, uh, their website, the World Jewish Congress, and they will say it themselves. And the church is simply wor worried about anti-Semitism when they're leaving the Catholic faithful completely defenseless against Jewish predatory behavior. Exactly, and um, and about sexual liberation, can you discuss like the impacts it has on like relationships and family structures and traditional societal norms? Yeah, it it will destroy the family. We know that, and that's part of the goal as well, because the family is the only thing that will create people who are independently minded. Uh, who can fend for themselves and don't have to be, don't want to, don't end up being slaves of the government through welfare programs or something like that. Well, they know that and they want a, a mass of docile individuals. That's what they want uh, because they're easy to control and control is their default setting. That's what they believe in. That's what libido dominante is. The Catholics believe that you're here to love and serve your neighbor uh, the opposite of that is libido dominandi, which means uh, dominate your neighbor for your benefit. That's the constitution of the American empire. 
and that's why it's satanic. Exactly, and and about the revival of Catholic culture, this is something that I'm um, interested in for Ireland. I want Ireland to, to become a Catholic nation again, but I feel like that's something that's, that's going to be very hard to do. But how how do you think um, the Catholic community, like in every country, including the clergy and religious leaders, um, come together to actively promote the revival of Catholic culture? Like, how do you think they should um, do it? Catholics who have left the faith have to come back to the faith. It's easy to do. There are all these Catholic churches in Ireland. You know what it was. You know what you have to do. You're going to have to wake up from your uh, binge, your sexual liberation binge, your usury binge, borrowing money, all of these false gods that you've been whoring after for a decade now, you have to repudiate them and go back to the Catholic faith, and then you will regain the freedom that you lost. That's the only hope for Ireland. You have to do this. You have to go back to the Catholic faith. Exactly. And I also hold the belief, too, to try and convince people to, you know, come back to the faith as I can engage in, like, in a peaceful dialogue. And I could say the same thing about traditional marriage, um, I mean, do you think that people should engage in like peaceful dialogues to convince people to come back? I mean, I also yeah. think that promoting Catholic arts and literature can also influence people to come back to the faith because that's what got me back um, to the faith as Catholic that's, literature and arts. Yeah, that's the that's the whole point of my book, The Dangers of Beauty. It's basically beauty is a transcendental, and beauty will put you in the in the in the presence of God. You know, it's not a religion. It's not going to save you, but it will put you in God's presence. And chances are you will act on that, that, uh, that movement. You will complete the movement and, you know, get re reconcile yourself with God. So the culture of beauty uh, is important. Irish music is important. I've been promoting Irish music in America for years now. I played Irish music every Monday night at the local pub for 16 years. Uh, I just went to a beautiful wedding in uh in uh, Muskegon, uh, Michigan, north of here, and the whole parish, uh, you know, the whole a whole generation of people got involved in playing Irish music, and it's helped them have a coherent culture. Uh, a lot of them are Irish, but not all of them. But I mean, that's what provides the coherence that you need, which is the alternative to uh, commercial music, which is all formed to 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 enslave you, to corrupt your morals to make money off you, to turn you into a, an asocial monster. That's what the music business does. Exactly. And um, it's very rare to come across someone nowadays to be listening to, like, Christian music and stuff. I mean, I feel like um, whenever Catholics do take power back again, they should um, promote Catholicism in the... Um, popular media outlets and stuff and and i feel like families too should are to blame for the collapse of catholic cultures because they're not doing much now to keep it alive so what do you think families should do on a daily basis to keep the faith alive in their homes you pray every day you got to go to mass every week you have to take responsibility for your own culture by think doing things like making your own music 
you have to pre under, explain to your children uh, that they're living in a predatory culture and that if they succumb to it, they will be unhappy. All of these things are part of what you do as a parent when you're, when you're raising your children. Uh, and I, so the, the wedding in Muskegon, seeing all those beautiful young people out on the steps of the church, uh, it's possible, it's doable, it's doable. It's happening there, it happened there. It's not, nobody knows about this place, but it, it happened there. They've been successful in negotiating their way through a toxic culture. Uh, I think I played some role in that by explaining the traps, uh, the things that hap can happen to you. Uh, my, my oldest son uh, was an inspiration for the groom in this marriage because he went to Russia uh, and married a woman there. And this guy, Liam, uh, went to Russia too, to imitating my, uh, my oldest son. And she, so it was an, an Irish guy, Irish-American and a Russian getting married. But they're surrounded by a whole community of people whose big families are all now just entering uh, the marriage age, the age of marriage. And I think that was the nice thing about Lee and, and Katya's wedding, because it set an example for those younger people. You know, you, you can't underestimate the power of example. And all of those people who went to that wedding, those young girls, the girls who are now in their, in their teens, uh, going to be married probably sooner rather than later, uh, all came away, I think, thinking that, yeah, it's possible. You can have a successful life. You can get married. You don't have to spend your life uh, addicted to pornography in your mother's basement. You can have a life of your own. And the way to get that life is to get married. And the way to get married is to get married in the church because you need God's help to carry that burden forward. I mean, I think that's correct because I do some of the things listed about going to Mass and praying daily. I do my rosaries and veneration of saints nearly every single day. And I go to this Mass um, every weekend. I try to convince some of my friends to become Catholic, but they're not really into that thing yet. But that's what I do nearly every day is pray the rosary. Oh, God, God, God has a way of sending suffering into your life uh, as a way of drawing you closer to him. And that's what I found in around 2019. I found that, uh, you know, I wrote libido dominandi 25 years ago and nobody could understand that sexual liberation was a form of control. But by 2019, all of these young guys who were addicted to pornography on their cell phones understood what I was saying. I didn't have to explain it to them. As soon as I gave him the word, a lot of them just straightened out their lives simply because there was someone out there who could explain what was really happening. So as the more suffering increases, uh, the more people start looking for God. Uh, and that God knows that. That's the purpose. That's why he allows suffering. Exactly. And I feel like the ultimate reason or the ultimate um I feel like the ultimate reason why people will go back to the faith is through suffering. Something uh, kind of needs to happen that will make people suffer that will turn people back to the faith. And I feel like that's the only way the faith will come about again is if people suffer to the point where they turn back to God and the Catholic faith for help and comfort. Yeah, I, I just experienced this. I, uh, I mentioned Rose Hawthorne and uh cancer and the guy the, so it was, when i got that holy card the guy living two houses down is 
He's dying of cancer. Now, this is a guy who led the uh, uh, the the life of a reprobate. Uh, his, his theme song was Wasting Away in Margaritaville. He would go down to Florida and live that life of wine, women, and song. And finally, it caught up with him, and he got cancer. At that point, he started real serious suffering. He had pancreatic cancer, which is extremely painful. He was in pain. And I'd go to him and I'd say, you know, this is this is what had to happen so that you would come back to God. There's no other way it would have happened. I mean, I kept telling him you should go to confession. And it was finally when the pain became so unavoidable and he realized, yeah, I got to do something. And that's why that brought him back to the church. Suffering brought him back to the church. There was no miracle. Uh, he died, but he died in the grace of God, surrounded by his family that, that took care of him. And that's what else you, that's, that's what we all have to hope for, that you die in the, in the grace of God. And he did it. And the church can allow you to do that. So that's why you should go to the church. It may not seem that way now when you're 20 years old, but sooner or later, suffering is going to enter your life as a way of bringing you back to God. Exactly. And I have a question about the church as well, because um, it's gotten so corrupt. Are the priests still valid to hear confessions and stuff? Would you have like any knowledge in that? Like, would priests still be valid, even though like the Vatican and all has been corrupted? I, I have a German friend who told me nobody, they, they, priests aren't hearing confession over there in Germany. Well, shame on them. That's why Germany is such a docile slave of the American empire, because they've abandoned the Catholic faith. 500,000 Catholics left the church last year in Germany. The more people who leave the church in Germany, the more enslaved the German people will be, because the Catholic church is the only thing that can stand up to a corrupt government. That's, that's exactly what happened during uh, the Third Reich. The main opponent of the Nazis was not the Jews, it was the Catholic Church. And I just read a, a book, uh, Christus in Dachau, by an Austrian priest, uh, that will be part of my um, forthcoming book on the Holocaust narrative. What happened over this period of time is basically, that was the message. The message is what I just told you, that God allowed the suffering in the concentration camps to bring Germany back closer to God. Uh, and that was the message of Father Lenz's book, Christus and Dachau, and that narrative got stolen by Elie Wiesel, and it got turned into the exact opposite. Father Lenz said that godlessness was the, the cause of uh, Nazism. Elie Wiesel writes his book, uh, and it says, he says, God died at Auschwitz. That's propaganda for atheism, uh, because the Jews like to spread weakness because they feel strong when everyone else is weak. Exactly. And what was I going to say again to you at a point I was going to make? Oh, yes. So I, I preach to most people in the tribune that you need um, Catholicism and stuff, but they don't listen. I mean, the truth movement can't, I mean, especially the Irish truth and nationalist movement, that you can't really be a nationalist without God. I, I think they're completely compatible. I think the only thing that allows you to be a, a real nationalist and love your country is your faith in God. 
Exactly. I mean, I, I think I think that what happened what happened over this the course of the 20th century or late 19th century is that nationalism became a replacement for God. No, that's not going to work. It's going to work. What, what are you going to say? That you're the, the master race and everybody else is inferior? That's not going to get anywhere. How are you going to deal with other people? How are these nations going to have their own character and deal with other people unless you recognize the creator as the source of your being, as the source of your country and, and whatever else? And then if you accept that law, like the moral law, uh, then you've got a successful basis for collaboration with other people. It's that simple. You can't get around it. They've already tried the other thing. The Nazism, exactly. the, the extreme nationalism of national socialism failed miserably. Failed miserably. Exactly. And I see that too in many group chats. Um, people say that oh, we're better than this race and whatever. And like, no, you're not. Every race is equal under God. And everyone and, and, and every race has their own homeland and continents, the same way Europeans live there and non-european yeah. over there and like um and this yeah, there, there, there was there was, a, there was a crisis in europe uh when protestantism collapsed in protestant countries so like norway for example the lutheranism was the established religion then it's not the established religion and then the people there will like what what am i and a lot of these people decided well i must be white since I'm not uh, a Protestant anymore. A white boy is a Protestant who doesn't go to church anymore, largely. And that's that's the problem. That's the identity crisis that's go that is happening right now in these formerly Protestant countries. And now it's happening in Ireland too. You have this, uh, this, this uh, uh, talk about paganism going back to the Druids celebrating Beltane. This is all a function of their sexual behavior. This is all because they feel guilt and they don't know how they're not going to confession uh, because they've abandoned the Catholic church and now they're burdened with guilt. So what am I going to do? I guess I'll take my clothes off and jump over this fire and oh, God didn't strike me dead. So therefore I feel a little bit better, a little momentary release. That's, that's what this is about. This neo-paganism is all a function of sexual misbehavior. Exactly. And it's awful to see that paganism is resurging in the nationalist movement as well. I mean, that's one of the major problems of the nationalist movement. But there's a question on here in the chat if you want to um, answer it. Um, is the GDL, the Goyam Defence League, a psyop? Well, because what, you, you, what you need to do is get handsome truth on. And then ask him that question. You ask him that question. I mean, that's that's a question that someone's asking in the chat. They want. Well, I said I when he was on. He I have a, a podcast on Friday. He showed up on the thing, and I said basically, you're responsible for the hate crimes law in Florida. I don't think that was a, a great idea, uh, and he he admitted that he was, but. Uh, and so all the people after that, you know, I got all these comments saying he's a double agent. He's an agent provocateur. Get him on your program and ask him. I mean, I will do that. So is that somebody in the chat asked that question. I thought I would um, read it out um, to see your opinion. But um, anyways, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. I hope you can come on again sometime. Okay. Thank you. You're very welcome, and I will see you later. And thanks to everyone who has tuned in. 
and I'll be back again shortly. I'll be back again soon this week. So God bless and good night.